Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, I'm Rajesh Manwani from Julius Bear, and welcome to the second part of the podcast, Demystifying Blockchain and Cryptocurrencies. In part one, we talked about its history, how it works, and why it has become so important. I'm joined again by Dan Libao of Lightbulb Capital. Welcome again, Dan. Thank you. And we're going to start with the takeoff moment for the blockchain industry in 2014. What was it, Dan? Yeah, so in 2014, we saw the rise of a new type of blockchain platform. I alluded briefly to it earlier as a, a smart contract type of a platform. And um, the concept of a smart contract is actually a lot older than 2014. So the term is actually coined by a gentleman called Nick Zabo, who wrote an interesting paper where he compares the smart contract to a vending machine. And um, that was in 1997. So the concept was there for a while. But with the go-live of Ethereum, now the blockchain world had a platform where they could not only transfer value from A to B, but also create simple logic and build applications on top of a decentralized platform to create financial services products, for example. And what was it in Ethereum that made that happen? So on Ethereum, you have a programming language that is superior to the scripting language that you find on Bitcoin. Um, There's a lot of arguments about whether this programming language is of very high quality. Some people argue not, but it's functionally more rich than what you can do on Bitcoin. And I think that was the the one thing that made the big difference. A couple of more things about smart contracts. You know, they're not smart and they are not contracts. Oh, nicely put. Yeah, so... Not smart because you basically need to program them exactly as per what you want them to do. So there's basically zero tolerance for error because if you program it wrong, it will execute it wrong. They're also not contracts because I think in most jurisdictions, smart contracts are not legally accepted agreements. I think there are also a whole bunch of challenges with Ethereum technology. One of them is finality. You know how in finance we value very much that once a transaction is done, it's really done and it, it cannot be changed. So you get the confirmation and then it's considered to be done. Correct. So that can take some time until that happens on Ethereum because it uses a what we call a probabilistic consensus algorithm. So there's a moment in time where you think that you probably have done the transaction, but the final confirmation is still outstanding. So that gives some attack surface for bad actors to interject something. It's also relatively slow and sometimes quite expensive to execute these smart contracts. So that's why we see other platforms like, for example, Tezos or Polkadot, who are now um, trying to improve on what Ethereum put out at first. Right. So I guess it's still work in progress, you know, finding this... Everything. Yeah. Every day. (laughs) The speed and, and scalability. But I guess with this development, blockchains no longer stayed as networks for storing and transacting value. And as you said, also for contracting value. Now let's switch gears a little then to where it starts to get, in my opinion, really interesting. Okay. 
Earlier this year, there was an art object sold at the Christie's auction house for the equivalent of $69 million, making it the fourth most expensive artwork by a living artist. The gripping part of the story is that until then, most people had never even heard of the artist, who goes by the name Beeple. And also because the sale was not of a physical artwork, but rather of a collage of his images on a computer code, also known as a token. Now, tokens, I believe, are not just tied to art. Enter tokenization, which is the term for issuing digital tokens on a blockchain that represent real tradable underlying assets. Examples of tokens are proliferating across asset classes. Bonds are being issued on the blockchain, then being made into smaller lot sizes to increase their liquidity. Yet others are trying to offer liquidity for less liquid asset classes like real estate or private equity to list just a few. Can you talk to us about what are these digital tokens, Dan? And again, what's the innovation here? What makes it happen? And also how much of it is is reality and how much of it is a bit of a hype? Yeah. So so I spent about 10 months investigating security tokens. And yeah, we're working with the editor of one journal that hopefully will publish our manuscript will soon. So, so we investigated quite a bit. I think first thing to note is that different types of tokens. Yeah, And I think we put them into three buckets. So the first bucket is, is a payment token. It's very akin to Bitcoin. You know, The utility of it is just to be able to pay somebody. And then you have what we call utility tokens. So tokens that basically give you a consumptive right for a product or a service that that system is offering to its clients. So by that, you mean the right to use the service, right? That's right. That's right. And then the third one are, are these security tokens, right? So they're basically digital representations of investment products that are recorded on a blockchain. And um, a few details about this market in particular, it's a nascent market. And um, from our analysis, what we learned is that giving control rights to the investors is um, a determinant for funding success. And that's interesting because many, many tokens in the utility token space have been issued and uh, issuers like them because they had to give no rights to anyone, right? So now security tokens, a very different story. They're used by entrepreneurs and by large companies. So it's something that we can see kind of across entrepreneurial finance and, and the traditional finance. You asked me to debunk the myth, right? So everyone says security token, great liquidity for any asset, right? So we looked at that a little bit and um, we couldn't find any evidence for that. Evidence for liquidity just massively increasing because of tokenization. Correct. So if you tokenize a security and you expect instant liquidity just because now it's available in token form, that's probably not going to happen. I just share one example. I think the biggest offering in our data set was the offering of a security token exchange itself. I raised $134 million at the time. And... We looked at the daily trading volume over, let's say, a 18-month period since listing. And I think this security traded about $10,000 per day. So if you had a $50,000 investment, you know, you can't sell it on a single day uh, unless you want to really impact the price a lot. So that's sort of interesting. But it's also promising that we see, for example, ADDX in Singapore or even DBS now issuing security tokens. And I think there's a lot of optimization that we can do in terms of settlement in the financial services industry. Maybe lastly, I think there's a a legal component to this. Because right now we have digital representations of 
some paper documents, if you like, that we store on blockchain. But I think to make this even more attractive, what we really need is a law, a legal framework where the record of a security on blockchain is accepted as ultimate proof of, of ownership. So some countries like Liechtenstein and Switzerland have changed their law so that that's possible. So I hope to see that in many other countries because then the immutable record on the blockchain really is the one record. Indeed, Dan, and it's a very sage advice to keep in mind the distinction of where tokenization can add real value versus simply for the sake of tokenizing. And also important to keep in mind the legal framework and which country will allow the full benefit uh, to be fructified. Now, Dan, it's been over 12 years since Satoshi's white paper and eight years since the setting up of Ethereum and smart contracts. What does the overall market for digital assets currently look like? Okay, so before I throw any numbers at you, I want to say it's highly volatile, so it changes day by day. So you need a timestamping for that too. <laughs> you, you do need a timestamp. So when I checked on Friday, 11th of June 2021, the total market cap was around 1.5 trillion US dollars. And 43% of that was actually Bitcoin alone. So Bitcoin is... That's, that's huge concentration. Very, very big. But what I anticipate is that that number is going to come down gradually because of the rise of these smart contract platforms that we talked about earlier. Within cryptocurrencies, we have three different types of assets, payment tokens we already talked about, then these smart contract platforms, and then also the so-called decentralized apps that build on top of these smart contract platforms. In terms of financial markets, basically there's huge fragmentation. So uh, listed on multiple exchanges. So it's very different from, say, traditional equities market where one stock is only listed in one venue, like Apple or Nasdaq, for example. Right? The data that we get from these markets is also very noisy, so no clear patterns can really be identified very, very easily. So to clarify, Dan, the instruments itself, like Bitcoin, are highly concentrated, but the venues they are being traded at are very fragmented. Correct. That's interesting. Correct. And they even come with different prices. So in 2018, there's a research paper that talks about what we call the kimchi premium. So it's a, it's a price difference between Bitcoin prices outside of Korea and inside of Korea because of capital controls mainly. So yeah, very, very immature market at this stage, but I think developing over time. Dan, you mentioned earlier that there are different motivations for people to be interested in cryptocurrencies. One of the things that concerns a lot of the people is the amount of speculation going on. In part due to this speculative element and in part also because there isn't always a clear revenue stream to analyze, cryptocurrencies have shown tremendous price volatility. While Bitcoin has so far yielded outstanding returns to those who bought early and held it, it has also lost 70% of its value once every four years. This volatility puts the most speculative derivative instrument to shame. Notwithstanding that, many people are looking to invest in cryptocurrencies. Some of them with an approach similar to buying a call option on its upside with a small premium they can afford to lose. Irrespective of the motivation and the time frame, for people who are looking to get started, what are the different ways for participating? And at a high level, if you can share what you consider to be the pros and cons of each. Sure. A few different ways and they, they might be suitable for different individuals, right? So the easiest way to really get going is to open an account with preferably a regulated cryptocurrency exchange. But then again, you basically have to trust that exchange. So I don't know what Satoshi would say about that. 
probably won't be a big fan. Probably not a big fan, right? Not your key, not your coin is what we say in, in cryptocurrency land. So exchanges are very easy to use, but then you give up that independence. Second, you could go fully independent, right? Self-custodize your private key and therefore be very independent from any sort of intermediary. But at the same time, there's a high risk of losing that private key or maybe it gets destroyed. Then there's a bigger responsibility with the individual because you can't outsource that responsibility to a third party. And I read that up to 20% of the assets are somehow not claimed, potentially because of one of those reasons. Correct. So it's a, real, it's a real problem. So the third way to approach this is to use a digital asset custodian who will charge you a fee, but you don't have that responsibility, sole responsibility for the private key anymore. So each of these come with different pros and cons. I guess they're all native to cryptocurrency land. Alternatively, what you could do is just buy a cryptocurrency fund. But these funds are very much focused on Bitcoin and Ethereum right now and maybe not so suitable for institutional investors because of energy consumption and so on. Great. I should reiterate something important to our listeners here. This podcast is meant as an educational discussion and not as investment advice. Julius Baer does not have active recommendations on cryptocurrencies. Thank you very much, Dan. This has been very fascinating. Oh, my pleasure. It was, it was great to have this conversation. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, another 20 minutes have quickly gone by. So far, in conclusion, blockchain technologies represent a considerable innovation in the world of finance. This innovation is driven by the fact that identity and ownership can be established through computing and mathematics, so-called cryptography, making it difficult to counterfeit or double-spend assets. That brings in the concept of cryptocurrencies, which is the digital money that enables transactions to take place on the blockchain and also to incentivize its participants to continue operating the blockchain. On top, there is the ability to create programs that allow real-world type of contracts to be developed, monitored, and executed digitally on the blockchain. Now, this is a new set of technologies. And as Dan mentioned, in the case of many promising new technologies, there is a bit of a gold rush happening. We should know that a number of challenges, technical, legal, commercial, are still being solved. And they need to be solved before blockchain can become truly disruptive. Now, we've only scratched the surface today, and there's a lot more ground for us to cover. For example, how useful are cryptocurrencies as an asset class for investing? What are the key risks? What are the environmental considerations? And so forth. We will peel more such layers of this onion in our next podcast, where Dan and I will be joined by Alex Rukshti, Julius Baer's research analyst and our resident expert on the topic, who has recently published an excellent report on blockchain titled The Future of Money and Data, the topic for our next podcast. Till then, goodbye and stay safe. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. 
The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.